Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. I'm Ryan Salisbury. I'm Chris Nivens. Today we have Young Neocon. Yeah, hi. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> so today we are here to talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe of economics books. It is uh, <laughs> the most popular by far. It has 30 different editions. It takes place in a semi-realistic fantasy universe and <laughs> ages ever worse <laughs> as time goes on. And uh, what the hell, it's probably owned by Disney. <laughs> probably. <laughs> uh, I'm talking about Freakonomics and Super Freakonomics. Mm. Uh, so I started reading these books uh, like a month and a half ago. Uh, I posted on Twitter that I was reading them and uh, Young <laughs> asked me to come on the show because he wanted to talk about it as well. I mean, I'd just like to take any chance I can to like, A, talk about economics and then B, dunk on it. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, yeah, Freakonomics is very funny, but yeah, anyway, continue the intro. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it was written by uh, Stephen Levitt and Stephen J. Dubner uh, in 2005, originally, and um, it was extremely popular. It sold over 4 million copies. Um, it had several editions through like 2009, and then the sequel was uh, Super Freakonomics, uh, which we'll also be talking about. And uh, they are just awful books. They're really fucking bad. Um, like some of the parts are are some somewhat interesting because he's like you know talking about things that happen in real life. Uh, but the economics parts, I'm not even really sure what they're supposed to be because there's really very little economics in the book at all. Yeah, it's it's just not very. It's so so personally subjective to like whatever the fuck these guys find is like kind of semi contrarian and and yeah it's very it's a lot of like uh here's you know? here's what my friends are at harvard are researching right that's like 90 percent of the content it's like i have a friend <laughs> at harvard and this is his research and uh yep. somehow this has to do with economics <laughs> yeah i've always found that uh sort of uh, style very unnerving. That's why I don't like popular press books. But <laughs> it's just uh, like I don't know. It's funny because I'm just doing this thread, you know, on the toilet about uh, the vape ban and all this stuff. And I was talking about all this like highfalutin and abstract economic theory stuff. Molan Vape, by the way. So <laughs> 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 uh, that should be our yeah. We'll get tattoos of it, like those guys. Like those guys. <laughs> but um, it's like um, I was talking about all this stuff, like incentive compatibility, which is actually like superficially very similar to the stuff he talks about in Freakonomics, which is funny because mm. it's independent, but the way he talks about it is just totally just, like, bland, it's it's substanceless, and also mm. he's, uh, like, full of shit. I'm gonna, I have a couple, <laughs> papers, yes. a couple papers as I want to, want to have uh, that discuss uh, Levin and Dubner, so for example, I'm sending you right now, it's a review of the criminal deterrence literature, and his claims are specifically addressed in it. Okay. It's from. It's from uh, I don't know if you got to the part where he talks about how the basically the eugenics part, but anyway, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, no, I read. I read the all of both books. Unfortunately, um, I I did skim parts of the second one, but yeah, I love to write pop economics books uh, with a eugenics section, <laughs> <laughs> just for mass consumption. No big deal. I was about to say, like the whole thing in general is just like really insanely casually racist. Yes. Like, he, like the yeah. first book, especially, there's so many N bombs in it. 
Well, and it's funny too because he tries to figure himself as being like against racism. So he talks yeah. that the whole name discrimination section, which is yeah. funny because he actually talks about some valid results in that section, but uh, then just totally elides like what he's talking. Like I, I forget even what he's. I don't think he even provides a solution. I don't remember. <laughs> he repeatedly points out problems that are like innate to capitalism that cannot possibly be solved within capitalism yeah. and then just yep. moves on. It's kind of like Buddhist, right? It's like, you just got to learn to accept the, it's to teach <laughs> the you to, yeah. to understand the, the like nature of the illusion and to accept it. The economy is suffering. <laughs> right. Exactly. There's no path out of the, the cycle of, uh, of, uh, of supply and demand. Or whatever. Right. It's, it's Buddhist capitalist, uh, or like a, like a, like a, like capitalism explained, with like a Buddhist uh, disposition, but in the style of Ripley's Believe It or Not. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. It's like this is just tangential, but totally tangential. But there's like funny thing of like during World War II, there were quite a few Buddhists in Japan who actually became shills for the uh, for the um, authority. Like, so yeah. they would do these things. They would write these things where they would be like, you know. Uh, when you shoot uh, an innocent uh, 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 Chinese right, uh, farmer, uh, mm -hmm. do not like despair because you are not doing it for the universe is working through you and the bullet is merely flowing from you right. and uh, the and and is re-entering them into the cycle of reincarnation. So no biggie or whatever. And it's mm -hmm. just it's funny because it feels very much like that. It's like a, it's sort of this this just like a, don't worry, be happy, life is terrible. <laughs> right. It's, which is kind of that's it's like that's what the public persona of economics is at least yeah yeah it's it's very resonant with the kind of the, the christian right and their and their tendency to kind of just be like oh well you know there's so much suffering in the world so thoughts and prayers and uh, just be as white as possible <laughs> <laughs> well, and suffering is only ever a cudgel for them so they'll talk about yeah. like oh like um these privileged liberal leftists or whatever, but it's funny because it's just like okay, well, if your conception of them is as like privileged Hollywood or whatever it is, elites, you know, then why aren't you opposed to the existence of said elitism? But it's just like, no, it's just a selective usage of the idea. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry for the popping noise. This is <laughs> I was opening a drink. Right. Uh, so apparently, he won the uh, the Patrick Bateman uh, Clark Medal <laughs> of uh, economic achievement. <laughs> Which has uh, some uh, illustrious names like uh, Paul Krugman and Lawrence Summers, two of my favorite guys, right there. Mm -hmm. John Bates Clark Medal is with um, the uh, the uh, Fama Award and the Nobel Prize, like the three biggest prizes mm -hmm. in economics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, Milton Friedman also got it, and yeah, Paul it's Samuelson. It's all Chicago people. Lots of yeah, great of guys. It uh, of it's, all, it it's all it's all the people who shop at the bookstore I was just at. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny actually boxing yourself here <laughs> okay so let's start with the, the the very beginning the preface to Freakonomics so I'm just going to read this uh, because it's insane <laughs> Levitt had an interview for the Society of Fellows for the Venerable Intellectual Clubhouse at Harvard oh sorry the Venerable Intellectual Clubhouse at Harvard that pays young scholars to do their own work for three years with no commitments Levitt felt he didn't stand a chance for starters, he didn't consider himself an intellectual, but he does now. Uh, he would be interviewed over dinner by the senior fellows, a collection of world-renowned philosophers, scientists, and historians. 
I wonder if uh, <laughs> I wonder if Epstein was there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. He provided the entertainment. He worried he wouldn't have enough conversation to last even the first course. Disquietingly, one of the senior fellows said to Levitt, I'm having a hard time seeing the unifying theme of your work. Could you explain it? Levitt was stymied. He had no idea what his unifying theme was, or if he even had one. Amartya Sen, the future Nobel-winning economist, jumped in and neatly summarized what he saw as Levitt's theme. Yes, Levitt said eagerly, that's my theme. Another fellow then offered another theme. You're right, said Levitt, that's my theme. And so it went, like dogs tugging at a bone, until the philosopher Robert Nozick interrupted. Oh, well, I'll talk about him in a second. How old are you, Steve? He asked. 26. Nozick turned to the other fellows. He's 26 years old. Why does he need to have a unifying theme? Maybe he's going to be one of those people who's so talented he doesn't need one. He'll take a question and he'll just answer it, and it'll be fine. And then everybody started clapping. <laughs> yeah, right. That theme's uh, name was Albert, Albert Einstein. Einstein right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Robert Nozick is a. I think he's from also also from Harvard. He is a uh, libertarian economist, who philosopher, <laughs> philosopher whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> one of his uh, contentions is that uh, free market economy can only work if you can sell a futures contract for all of the labor over your lifetime, which uh, if that sounds confusing, what it basically means is uh, selling yourself into slavery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, okay, I mean, I don't really want, I'm not really one to hear the to care to defend Robert Nozick here, but just a <laughs> note is that what he's, he actually says straight up that in his world, like while it's formally possible to make such a contract, it would be effectively unenforceable. Okay. Because, because, because well, that's good. It, that's it's good that that's his objection to it. I know the idea is that you have a sovereign contract, right? But you also are supposed to have total freedom of movement, or else, like, like right, right. Because you can't, you can't like use their contractual uh, and whatever mechanisms to like reinstitute like the regulatory state by other means he does i mean you're allowed to like have your own little and intentional community if you wanted but like you can't like f- prevent i mean i don't know he's very kind of he i think he, i have to i forget whether or not he believes people have the right to reject I don't, actually i don't think he d- thinks that people can, can reject people from their community but i i i have to check again but he he i mean yes he it is just but the, it just shows it highlights how abstract and uh substance of it is right because the whole point is yeah. that he's thinking these very abstract formal laws and so his idea is that contracting is sovereign so therefore like you should be able to do this but like right. he acknowledges that it's it's if if we should be able to do this then his arguments against the state don't work either then because like in the original condition we could just hypothesize that everybody signed one of those contracts if the yeah. impossible were possible, then this is how things would work. Very valuable well, no. exercise. No, but no, no, I mean, it's like, 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 if if the slavery contract was truly, you know, valid, then his arguments against the state being unjust don't work because yeah. you can just hypothesize like Hobbes or no more like Locke that people mm. in some original condition did sign these contracts, and then the question becomes, well, what about children? But as soon right. as you answer that, you then have to ask the substantive question of why children are different. And then yep. you have to answer the question about, oh, you're raised in a – we live in a society. Uh, <laughs> you're raised a certain way. You only have certain opportunities. You only have so much so much information, and therefore mm-hmm. it renders it unjust. And if that renders mm-hmm. it unjust, then we're back to the beginning again. You know what I'm saying? So it's just yep. like yep. – so it just, it just it's just a weird like – 
I don't know. It, it, it's I don't know if this is a if there is like any historical evidence for this whatsoever. I really doubt it. But there are some libertarians that believe that peasants signed a pactum subjectionis to sign their rights away to the king, and that's that was <laughs> the basis for the feudal class system. Um, I wouldn't put it past the feudal lords to have gone to a bunch of illiterate peasants and said, hey, if you don't uh, right. put your fingerprint on this, I'm going to kill your children <laughs> or whatever. Right. So, I mean, right. that doesn't oh, this is, but... yeah. Well, this you know, where... they made a voluntary choice. <clears throat> you know, you can either let your children die, which technically is not violence against you because they're your children and not you. Or, you well, know, no, but they're your property. So it is violence against you. <laughs> oh, OK. <laughs> right, 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 right. right. <laughs> But but I mean like that that's the classic shit with with like right libertarian whatever the fuck you want to call it and cap shit is that they they really have no or or typically very flimsy uh, understanding or at least acknowledgement of um, issues of like power and violence as they operate in the real world right like you said yeah. uh, you know, like it's just like abstract and formal and all this shit and you're like yeah 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 if you pay if you live in a in a perfectly airtight box and the inside is painted blue um you know that's great for you but like no light is coming in so how do you know it's blue and how do you know it's a fucking box and eventually you're gonna die anyway so you know all right. Well, that's a longer question about uh, whatever. But uh, but yeah. uh, but, uh, but uh, not to go all dead, done it. But uh, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> but see, it's, I mean, look, I I don't know. It's a very this is a very qualified defense of the fact that like in the actual like literature of this stuff, these people aren't these total uh, bozos. It's, they they do acknowledge the existence of power. They're still total right. assholes, right? But it's just like right. <laughs> the the common ancap is just like literally either. 14 or, or and like or a student at george mason university right those, <laughs> those guys though are like just cynical operators they're not yes. like uh they usually don't even trouble themselves with this i mean except when they oh no I, I went to mason i went to mason a lot oh, of them, you know them fully okay. fully believe it uh, yes well fully like, believe it when they're not publishing articles like a defense of consensual pedophilia or whatever you know but <laughs> or whatever, whatever it is you know like yeah. uh <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so he uh, he opens the book with a colorblind version of the 1990s crime panic and the uh, super predator, and uh, this kind of sets the tone for the whole Good book. Good start. Because, you know, he's like, uh, oh, what could have explained this? Everyone else was trying to, but there was just one problem. They were wrong. Yeah, of course. The real <laughs> cause was legalized abortion. <laughs> Prager you. That's yeah. a book. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, his whole thing basically throughout the book is like, uh, you know, he he states a thing, and then he's like, oh, what, what's the explanation for this? And then he says like a really stupid explanation that, you know, a regular person would be like, well, that's probably not it. And then he's like, oh, yeah, no, the real thing is this, and that's economics. <laughs> <laughs> um, by the way, I'm now, I am now sending you a 2009 review of – not only the original Levitt paper, but, you know, uh, this went back and forth for actually a lot of times in economics because criminologists dismissed it right away. And economists right, were like, right. no, we know you're disciplined better than you do. <laughs> and then, so, and then every, time, every time they did that, Levitt and so on would um, expand their subject matter. They would weaken the thesis and they would add new data sets. And in theory, that's uh, actually how you know, science is supposed to work. But by the end of it, they just weren't. But anyway, the right, point right, is right. that even with that in mind, though, and um, this author argues that if you review the evidence and use the correct econometric controls, like 
there's basically no evidence for the claims whatsoever. But anyway, that's getting ahead of ourselves. Anyway. Uh, another thing he does uh, throughout this is like uh, he, he puts two absurd things next to each other and asks what they have in common. So all, all of his chapter titles are like this. Uh, so the first one is, uh, what do school teachers and sumo wrestlers have in common? So I'm trying to remember what the actual thing is. Oh, yeah. The thing they have in common is that they both rig matches. Right. So <laughs> really very spurious thing. Uh, so he, he starts talking about incentives and he says, an incentive is simply a means of urging people to do more of a good thing and less of a bad thing. That's not what uh, incentive is. Right, exactly. <laughs> Dude, what the fuck? <laughs> it's, it, it's, not, it's funny because I literally just did a thread of this. That's not what a fucking incentive is. <laughs> <laughs> An incentive makes no moral claim about yeah. uh, what, how good the end is. And yeah. An incentive has no uh, implication of intentionality. And an incentive doesn't even require a rational agent. It just requires a well-defined situation with formal rules and people yep. and people knowing what to do. So it's just yep. like, not no. Again, I just I even screwed myself up there. It doesn't require knowing what to do. It just means that like there is an abstractable order to a system involving agents in their environment. Basically, I mean that's the most abstract way of putting it. It's just total nonsense when he talks about it. Anyway. And more to the point, I think an incentive is just like a nice word for indirect state control <laughs> like the state forces you to do something whether through punishing you or offering you something through their rationing system in in the context of policy yes but like if we were talking about like you know our ideal society and we were talking about like disincentivizing crime like we wouldn't oh uh, yeah right coercive right. right like uh and if we're talking about it in the abstract like, it's fine too i mean in the context of policy incentives almost entirely always mean either fiduciary or criminal punishments and yeah rewards or they mean regulations or they mean uh whatever you know now oh nudges with cat you know now it's nudges right right right, right, right. <laughs> so i know uh, you shut the fuck up you know but anyway uh <laughs> so here's one of the few like times he actually touches on economics as a subject uh here he says too many americans aren't paying their fair share of income tax it was the economist Milton Friedman who helped come up with a solution to this one. Automatic tax withholding from employees' paychecks. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I love that shit. I wonder why <laughs> you can't automatically collect taxes from corporations. That's, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, funny. It's like, I, think I guess it's I, because I, it depends I, on the, the numbers that the, uh, the corporations write in their books, unlike the employee pay. <laughs> I, th I think that Friedman would say that you could... But uh, because Friedman doesn't, I mean, Friedman wasn't fucking in favor of income tax withholding. You know what I mean? Like, uh, this is again, it's this abstract bullshit where he'll do stuff. He'll say like, <laughs> "Oh, I don't support this thing," and then he'll create a model for how to do it. He did that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's like a libertarian. That's the fucking libertarian, uh, like catechism. It's just like, "Oh, I don't support this, but here's how you do it anyway." Yeah. <laughs> I would really advise against any anarchist building bombs, but if you wanted to build a bomb, which I would recommend you don't do, here's how to do it. <laughs> right, right, exactly. That's like that bit that's like, uh, like uh, you can't joke about uh, calling for the assassination of the president on TV, but if you were to do so. <laughs> Again, I, I am reminding you, this is totally illegal and not something you should do. <laughs> 
Uh, so he also says some of the most compelling incentives yet invented have been put in place to deter crime. Ooh, cool. Oh, nice. <laughs> Let's see this. Uh, the, the teacher's part, he gets into, uh, the NCLB, which is, uh, it's no child left behind. Oh yeah. <laughs> he gets really into, uh, no child left okay. behind and other high stakes testing programs. Um, and though he mentioned moral incentive, uh, in his explanation on incentives, he doesn't really discuss the effects or morality of uh, cutting school funding to schools to test poorly. <laughs> and he, on the contrary, excitedly talks about how to make sure low-performing classes get their staff fired or their funding cut. Uh, it's, just, it's just so funny because it's just like, like talk about incentive incompatibility. I mean, oh, yeah. that's just like what all you're doing is creating a massive market for fraud. I think he talks about right. that. But- and then secondly, like education scores aren't like a commodity. Like, like if you do poorly at one point, it affects you later. So it's just like, yeah. like you can't, it's a self-reinforcing cycle. So if you like punish schools for doing poorly mm-hmm. and everybody knew, knew this too, they all said it. Like, I, I mean, that was kind of the point. It was backdoor defunding, but he'll never mention that. <laughs> yeah. He pretty much always like, he'll point out a problem that's like, okay, there's a very clear solution to this and it's to get rid of the thing that's causing the problem. Like in this case, no child left behind, but then he just never says it or like suggests maybe that would be a good idea or what an alternative could be. I mean, again, it's the Zen, it's the Zen approach, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look at this goofy problem that causes suffering all over the fucking country. Well, anyway, <laughs> moving on it's to the like, next goofy uh, problem. Uh, I created this thing, and now it sucks that some of these things are bad. But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. like, ah, oh, shucks! How did we ever know that was going to happen when I said it was going to when I made it? Like, it's, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. I mean, yeah. you can you can take it to the most logical conclusion. Like, if you want to really talk about incentives, nearly one hundred percent of horrible things that people do are incentivized by the state, yes. which should be abolished. If there's no money, then there's no salary bonus or school funding to worry about. Which is like he says that uh, teachers cheat on standardized tests so that they can get bonuses which is bullshit well uh, i mean it's, I mean, it's, they, it's they partly it, true but like they do it so they don't get that's, fired yeah exactly just exactly yeah. <laughs> so i don't know it's just like every every problem he he points out like he keeps stacking stuff onto it and it's like well it sounds like the solution is to abolish capitalism and the state <laughs> <laughs> but as yeah. with all these things like the main the the operating powerful unstated assumption sometimes stated is that uh these things are ineliminable right like by definition there is no other order right things and 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 other possible order and like you know it's just uh, again it's just another one of these things where well like in economics literature itself in the discipline and you go to the Mm -hmm. conferences Mm-hmm. Half the papers are talking about a dish, a different orders, and they create all kinds of hypothetical toy models of totally different distribution systems mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. totally different incentive systems. In fact, they use this as their main sort of like grist for thinking about institutions and information and incentives and whatever. And then it's just like in the public face of it, they'll just be like, "Oh, there's actually you can't even conceive." Of, you know what I mean? It's just it's right. Just, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. He's particularly bad, though. He's a particularly horrible piece of shit. <laughs> Levitt. I mean, really. Yeah, yeah. So the uh, yeah the sumo wrestlers thing is basically just like they all they also rig their matches. It's not super interesting. 
mainly because like uh, none of us watch sumo wrestling, so it's like oh, it's, uh, I don't really have any connection it, to it. Honestly, <laughs> I will I will say this like this kind of this kind of shit is that like it, it, you know like I said it's it's all you know you know written in the tone of Ripley's Believe It or Not or whatever the fuck like and it's very very convenient uh, kind of dumbass wacky humor that in this case is definitely taking advantage of like um the assumption of a white reader who's like who exoticizes a place like japan and sumo wrestlers are cartoonish to them so it's like that's the joke it's funny you know he just picked a fucking thing out of you know a fucking travel magazine was like oh sumo wrestlers that's goofy right that's not just a a very interesting part of somebody else's culture and mythology and the way that they think about the world yeah, it's weird like, he didn't talk about like baseball yeah right you know like fuck you love it well, you know, I mean, not to get ahead of ourselves, but he has a, the, chi- the, t- the the chapter t- titled literally, what is it titled? Uh, uh, How the clan is like a real estate agent? No, I was uh, that's. I mean, I, mean, uh, I, 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 I was going to say horrible. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, they are though. Oh yeah, here we go. This I can't even believe this was allowed to get published. A Rashonda by any other name? Oh yeah. Well, that's oh, later. Yeah. We'll get Great. there. That's just so fucking like <laughs> holy bile, The bile rises in my throat. It is bad. <laughs> yeah. So so speaking of the uh, the quirky humor, the end of this chapter is uh, so if sumo wrestlers, school teachers, and daycare parents all cheat, are we to assume that mankind is innately and universally corrupt? And if so, how <laughs> corrupt? The answer may lie in bagels. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So random. Bagel study. You should have oh, called it. God. You should have called the book Epic Baconomics. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, um, and the bagel chapter. Oh, yeah, yeah. With the fucking uh, free entrepreneurial bagel guy or whatever. Ugh. So that chapter doesn't... He doesn't... That chapter... I, I, you know, I actually, when I was a kid, you know, I was like, when I was 14, I was like a fucking, you know, libertarian reactionary piece of shit oh, yeah, totally. and i and i and i read this book twice so 14 year old right exactly and i read this book yeah. although in my defense i was already uh anti-war anti-zionism uh, and uh, <laughs> and uh, an avid reader of uh, foucault but uh anyways um rub it in uh, and uh, <laughs> but um I even I remember reading that chapter and both times just being like what the fuck is the point of this chapter he didn't even <laughs> he didn't even he doesn't even talk about what like he just says isn't it funny that these people I don't know whatever <laughs> yeah I, I think I skipped over that one in my notes because uh, <laughs> okay so the, straight what, to the clan one <laughs> the whole the whole point of that chapter but it's just it's just so um, indicative of his writing because like uh, yeah yeah. yeah. When he started his business, he had a ninety-five percent payment rate. Uh, oh no, wrong, wrong, wrong case. Oh the, yeah. The, oh yeah. What does the bagel data have to say? He left behind his open basket for cash. Uh, uh, too often the money vanished. Uh, then what did he do? Yeah, yeah. So basically, like this guy sells bagels and uh, he does payments on the honor system. So he like leaves a basket out in an office. Um, and uh, people can just take as many bagels as they want and just leave the money for them. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the smaller offices are less uh, likely to steal because there's more observation and stronger social norms. Oh, that whole thing, right, yeah. And then all the holidays lead to, like, lower stuff or whatever. But, you know, the point he elides, though, is that I think he explicitly says that he makes almost as much money as he does with the bagels as he did in his, like, big 
office job or whatever. And so, like, this guy, e- even despite the theft and the free riders, this guy is making as much money as he is through this method of distributing bagels. And, like, that fact alone substantively undercuts so much of uh, – yes, we can talk about the surveillance incentives and the norms and all that stuff. But the point is, is that you can make as much money by basically, like, not doing anything and then just, like <laughs> – giving out people bagels and then if they want to they can pay you and then you make enough money even though there's free riders that just shows that like i mean maybe maybe we can't generalize it but it definitely shows that like claims that uh like somehow free riding and mutual whatever and like not hard work and all that stuff is always a recipe for disaster like right away i don't know yeah, if anybody, if there's no property, then I'll take uh, ten mansions, and uh, I'm never gonna work. You know, that was a frequent thing that I heard from George Mason students. Was, uh, right. Yeah. Oh, if you have communism, then uh, then I'm I want ten mansions, and you're gonna give them to me because it's communism now. That's how that works, it's, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> if there's no property. I'll just order up a bunch of fucking property, and then. Like yeah. okay, you know, uh, you have to clean all the toilets in those mansions, right? Oh, oh, you don't want it anymore? Okay. I mean, if you're the central planner of the Politburo, you can get someone else. (laughs) Well, basically what I'm trying to say is I I had a lot of friends admit that they never clean their own toilets. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's probably the norm for like people aged, like male aged 18, (laughs) men aged 18 to, yeah, whatever. Hey, I was working and I had to clean toilets for my job. <laughs> so, I understand, but I'm saying I like, was doing it. <laughs> what, what I'm saying is, I yeah, I understand, but I think is that like no, I, I got you, I got you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like uh, if they if they're from a suburb, primarily, I think is yeah. the yeah. big giveaway. Yeah, George Mason dudes especially, but just like yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so one of the <laughs> chapters is something like how the clan is like a real estate company. Um, and this is where he just starts really dropping the end bombs. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's about information asymmetry. And so his whole thing is like, oh, uh, yeah, the clan is effective because, uh, they actually only had to lynch people a few times. And then after that, people were just afraid of them. Isn't that cool? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then, and then he talks about how the way they were beaten. And actually, this was the only potentially cool part of this whole book, I think, was the one where he talks yeah. about how the guy who beat him by uh, by releasing all the clan codes on like the Superman serials or whatever. Yeah. That, yep. Yeah. And so that's also supposed to be his like thing. Like, look, like, like almost as liberal, like as Bill Maher said, uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant or whatever. Like, <laughs> you can beat the clan with uh, information and codes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, Holding up my gangrenous stump to the sun and wailing. Why isn't right, this yeah. working? <laughs> He's like, you know, what else would have uh, solved this? If you're, you know, whatever. <laughs> there's an inf- information asymmetry between the living and the dead, too. Yeah, but, yeah there's uh, a massive asymmetry there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so here's a take on information asymmetries that uh, age like dog shit, which is uh, information asymmetries everywhere have in fact been mortally wounded by the internet. Um, so this was just before, you know, Facebook and Google created like the largest surveillance engines of all <laughs> human <Aww>. history <laughs> where uh, none of us can look at the information, but they certainly can. 
Right, but and they Reddit, know everything that, that we're is, doing. That is the end of inf information asymmetry. Because, oh, right. Okay. Because it's because the asymmetry was that we had information about ourselves and our preferences and the behavior that the companies didn't. So we, <laughs> so we as consumers had a distinct advantage over these uh, companies. And so well, the first one, the, the, the first, the first asymmetry <laughs> that he talks about is uh, after that is like uh, the the real estate company, which is like uh, some website that uh, let you. Uh, look up like median home prices or something like that. It yeah. like brought the prices of, of houses down temporarily or something like that. Um, because uh, prior to that, real estate companies would keep the the listing prices like kind of secret. And uh, so somebody basically post posted them all on the internet, and uh, that destroyed the information asymmetry and made houses more affordable. Which again, this book right. was published in two thousand nine. Yeah. <laughs> so or in, uh, uh, sorry, yeah. in 2005. Oh, so oh, yeah, 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 right, yeah. right before it, it all fucked up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And as we know, you know, houses are all just 10, 10 bucks a pop now because we all know, you know, that they're 10 bucks a pop and that's what keeps you know, rampant. The price of computing estate. power went down and uh, so did the yeah, price of square just, footage. There was nothing they could do. All because of the internet. Thanks. Us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I I think he's the type of person who would repl re uh, refer to uh, like Amazon's predatory marketing practices as 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 the same kind of uh, resolution of information asymmetry as he's talking about with the real estate agents. You know what I mean? Because what what is the claim that the prices before were able to vary because no one else had information about what other producers sold at? So Amazon's service was by eliminating these information asymmetries. Which, like, you know, in the isolated real estate example sounds nice or whatever, but then you realize that, like, the same person who's providing the information uh, uh, service is also selling the thing that the information is about. And so, yep. <laughs> so yep. it's just... It's just and, yeah, and then also Amazon does fulfillment services for small businesses, and they surveil what they sell and take the most popular items that they sell mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. make their own version of Blown it them. and undercut yep. them. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So, it's so funny because yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh yeah, because that's just a that's their their solution is they they're like oh like um, we're ending information asymmetries for consumers between these competing producers by mm. recreating a whole other set of even more toxic information asymmetries that are now coupled <laughs> yep. to power and market yep. share where they yep. were not before. So it's yep. just like it's 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 like uh, the different. I don't know. It's like uh, uh you know uh. 7-Eleven might have cheaper prices than like uh, a local convenience store, but like I don't know. I don't know where I'm gonna go with that. The 7-Eleven will never Your donuts aren't as good. When you're on a downtime or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, that's. I, 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 we have to move kind of quickly to get through all the chapters, I guess. So that that's the end of that chapter, and that's all I'll cover on that. Um. So the next one is uh, why do drug dealers still live with their moms? Mm -hmm. mm. And this chapter pisses me off specifically <laughs> because of who is with um, uh, 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 no, with uh, Cedar Venkatech, um, who's used Chicago sociology uh, grad. And um, he's okay as a uh, sociologist. Um, yeah, he's at least doing empirical research, which is good. <laughs> yeah, but then he, uh, he leveraged this into this um, like TED Talk style, mm. like whatever. And 
and you know, on NPR and whatever. And yeah, that's he, all he, does he brings now. up this uh, he brings up this like right wing bugbear of the of the time, which is uh, a dispute over the number of houseless people in the U.S. So there's some activist, Mitch Snyder, uh, mm-hmm. that fought for houseless people in the 80s and 90s, and he claimed that there were three million homeless people in the U.S. Uh, Reagan said it was no more than 250,000, and uh, Levitt is pissed off about this. <laughs> The fact that he said a wrong number in the '90s. Um, who, who did? Uh, Mitch Snyder. Oh, so he's more he's more angry about Mitch Snyder than he is about uh, Ronald Reagan, of course. Um, and uh, he also Levitt makes an unsourced claim that Snyder told a college campus that 45 homeless people die every second. Wow. Which I I really doubt that <laughs> that happened. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, and then he follows I mean, with this gem. If he did, what's like an offhand comment in a class is not like. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. He said a wrong thing once. Right. Hey, right. let's look at your book right now and see what wrong <laughs> things you can find in it. <laughs> well, it's like, okay, um, so, okay, wait. Just look. At least this is Sudha Venkatesh's <laughs> books, right? Okay. First book American Project, The Rise and Fall of American Ghetto, Harvard University Press, 2000. Off the books, The Underground Economy of the Urban Poor. Harvard University Press 2006. But then, gang leader for a day, a rogue sociologist takes to the street. Penguin Press 2008. Floating City, a rogue sociologist lost and found in New York's underground economy. Penguin Press 2013. He contributed to Levitt and Dubner's Why Drug Dealers Live with Their Mom. In 2009, he's in a documentary. Uh, the, all these NPR. So it's like he doesn't even do academic work anymore. He just totally mm-hmm. leverages this into a public yep. topic, topic thing, which is. In my opinion, literally disgusting, but not for like any, uh, not for any sort of reasons of like authenticity or whatever. But it totally compromises the capacity to actually do like robust academic scholarly work. There's right. exceptions to this rule, like the book um, "Evicted" uh, by uh, uh, Desmond, I believe, and that's a mixture of journalism and sociology. But it's like a real book. It's not like a. It's like he does like real actual methodological it's stuff not like in this. it. <laughs> yeah, there's like a methodological section. There's da 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 da. da. Um, uh, and so it's fine. But Venkatesh is, uh, um, I don't know. Yeah, but what, 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 we have a there's a term for this. We call it like uh, what's the term? We call it like uh, not not like not. It's like something like action ethnographer or something. Um, for people who do these like ethnographies in like edgy places so it'd be like the drug dealers or or what or whatever um like adventurer ethnographers and it's kind of it's supposed to be an insult it's like saying like you prioritize um sensationalism and like uh, some exotic notion of danger over actual investigation of research and apparently i don't know i can't source this so don't i don't want to get libeled for it libel <laughs> claim forward so allegedly i've heard that uh, Venkatesh did some like shady things with regards to not as I mean actually I don't give a shit if he did gang stuff but I mean like with regards to like the academic aspect of it but allegedly I say okay anyway I do think he's too much of a coward to smoke crack I, I mean <laughs> he probably did actually have to <laughs> uh, but anyway so a- after after this thing about Mitch Snyder he says uh, about Snyder, it may be sad but not surprising to learn that experts like Snyder can be self-interested to the point of deceit. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> classic behavior of someone who's pathologically self-interested, dedicating your life to advocating for the most vulnerable people in society. Not like a guy who writes a book about how good economics is and never asks important ethical questions about what he's doing. <laughs> like, well, that's, that's what I was thinking about with the Republicans using this as a cudgel. Like for them, it's like an own if like a leftist or a humanitarian is anything but 100% like consistent, authentic, good, and selfless. But then like for But if you are, then else, you're virtue signaling. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah. For, but everybody else, it's just like they could be as pathological, cynical, evil as they want. Like, but mm -hmm. it's like, I mean, a lot of it's just cynical, just like, you know, political, whatever. But I think there's part two of types of people in this world, son. Jesus and Hitler. <laughs> right. But, I mean, basically, that's how a lot of these people look at it. And it's like, there's this whole this moralistic, sentimental mentality, which like believes that somehow if like you do the right thing, but for the wrong reasons, it's no longer right. Or like that, like yep. you, yep. you don't have to be like self-consistent and honest and authentic in whatever you do. And I don't even know what those mean, to be honest. Because, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't have some like authentic self that I can be consistent to. I'm just, I'm just, yeah, a, I'm just a that slug. whole um, al altruism <laughs> is really selfishness thing. And it's yeah. like, okay, oh, who cares? Shit. And it's, and it's <laughs> like, but that's a really, like, it's like, so it's saying like the motive, the subconscious, unconscious or unstated, mm -hmm. but conscious motive is somehow more real than the behavioral right. pattern and the right outcomes. exactly yeah and it's just like you don't even have to like uh you don't you can like i don't know like, it's like you know that guy uh that guy didn't save you from drowning because he cares about you he saved you from drowning because he wants to look like a hero like yeah exactly right. well fucking clip and i'm glad you want <laughs> to be a hero right oh, oh, like, oh okay put me back in then <laughs> right and and you right. know it's funny it's like but that when i was having the debate on twitter a long time ago about um about like how people don't really understand like the term like exchange or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, people, someone said to me, like, they were like, well, I said, okay, so under communism, if like, I am good at, uh, I don't know what social science. And my friend is good at guitar. And we like, I teach them sociology. They teach me guitar. Is like that in exchange that should be criminalized. And they're like, no, because like, if you under communism, you won't be doing it for like your own self benefit. You'll be doing it because like it's good or whatever. So I'm like, so wait, so for you, the differentiation between like exchange and mutual aid between like a selfish capitalist right. exchange and, and a true, whatever is the right. intention and the, the, <laughs> the, the existence and authenticity of the intention of the people involved. And you call yourself a materialist. That's fucking yeah. Christianity. That's not fucking, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's literally the fucking like uh, Paul gospel or whatever. Like, you know, it's just like, that's absurd. Uh, <laughs> goodness revealed unto the world, like ceases to be goodness. Cause now you're doing it for other people. That's fucking <laughs> Christianity. That's like the, right. not even the good kind. That's the fucking shitty kind. That's the like, <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it's just, it's so funny to me that like how quickly people will devolve into petty moralism. Anyway, yeah. this is our topic of freaking love. I mean, actually it is kind of yeah. related because this is what he does, but true. Anyway, so, after after ranting about uh, this guy lying one time about uh, statistics, uh, how do we even he starts... know he was lying? <laughs> <laughs> well, because he said there was three million homeless people in the U.S., which is definitely not true. But and that he, that is a real claim. But couldn't he you have know. just been wrong? Right. Yeah. Exactly. True. Yeah. Like, like, again like with intentionality, could... right? Again with intentionality. And then yeah. and then and then like like because uh, you know he could have been meaning 
housing insecure, which almost certainly at right. least a million people were absolutely insecure. Yeah, um, that's true too. Yeah. I, I mean, it's like, yeah. I, I mean, I have a problem. And, and, I, and when I looked, when I looked for the source of that claim, it was in some like right wing account of something that he said. It, it did, no did have a direct. It did have a direct quote, but like, still, it was like, you know, it was a a, a person trying to get this guy. So right, like, I mean, gives a shit. I can, um, but I, but anyway, so like, uh, l- l- let's move on from that. Um, uh, so he starts talking about uh, Venkatesh's work, which is about, uh, a- as Levitt puts it, uh, ghetto criminal gangs or something like that. Like, uh, yeah, oh yeah. he, he calls them like, ghetto criminals yeah, repeatedly. But, but then he said he's like, but his like real lesson though is like, oh, despite all the racist and exotic- exoticizing tropes I've just said about gangs, you might be interested to learn. That running a gang is actually like running a McDonald's, right? He's just like, <laughs> <laughs> You're like yeah. He's like, they, they they keep account books and uh of of inventory and supply and demand, and they they do math just like white and, people do. Yeah, they just they do the workers and they do math and they have exchanges and balance sheets. And guess what? The people at the top earn a lot of money, and the people at the uh-huh. bottom don't. Isn't that isn't that uh, By the way, I'm a guy yeah, who thinks capitalism is good. Right. It's just, it's just right. like, it's just like no, no, actually, no, but I think he was, that was his actual like defense of criminal gang. That's what I'm saying. I think that like, that's in his weird, bizarre way, that was him like being like, oh yeah, after all this racist stuff I just said. They're good, just actually, like corporations. Exactly, exactly. But actually, you right. might be surprised to know that uh, you, like, uh, your racist tropes are wrong because actually these are good capitalists who are just- <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah. Like, He's- Right. <laughs> exactly. He's providing he's providing like a redemptive moral formula uh, for people who are like seen as like violent thugs in their racist whatever uh, image because he's like, well, but but they also, you know, um, subjugate the less powerful through like a, a, a horrible rigid hierarchy that extracts wealth toward the top. So that means that they're actually good and legitimate, you know? Right. <laughs> like, and, and, it's just, and it's just like, and it's like, like had he not framed them as these like violent, evil savages, like which he right. does, right. then there wouldn't have been any need for that redemptive arc in the first place. Because right. at least to me, I mean, maybe his readership, but like, I'm not, I don't, I never fucking doubted the humanity and the entrepreneurial spirit of fucking gang members. That's like, why, that's like, that's, that's childish. What, what, of course, <laughs> like, like, of course they yeah. are uh, strategic and of course they're uh-huh. fucking human uh-huh. beings. It's just yeah. like, ah. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Rito's like, going to have to think that, like, uh, oh, these people are humans and they're innately valuable for being <laughs> you know, people, but, uh, yeah. but fortunately they're just like uh, corporate leaders. So, yeah, exactly. Um, so like right. just go with that instead. So actually, the drug war is good, right? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's, like, that's like an ML argument too. Like, <laughs> like, uh, like, oh, but actually, uh, drug gangs are capitalist, uh, so therefore, uh, uh, drug war is actually good. I mean, Parenti <laughs> literally does make that argument. But uh, and, so, so he talks about uh, Venkatesh's work, which is basically he uh, embedded with uh, this uh, crack dealing gang in Chicago, and. Uh, he managed to uh, get his hands on uh, the financials of the gang and and analyze them from an economic perspective. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this story, of course, uh, he's dropping in bombs left and right, still with the hard R, even though it was allegedly said by like these crack dealing guys. I, I really I don't see that being the case, but <laughs> uh, I think he didn't want to put the soft A in there and and look uh, 
you know, uh, unserious. <laughs> I, I mean, there are there are like specific quote which Venkatesh knows. There are like specific quotation practices for like ethnography and stuff, especially when you're dealing with uncomfortable things. I mean, first of all, actually, as a rule, you're, when you encounter an uncomfortable thing you, or like something you, that's like bad that could be compromising for the person who said it or whatever, at, mm -hmm. at, at, at like you normally shouldn't even usually publish it at all necessarily, but otherwise what you do is you keep your notes of it and then you provide a stated summary of it. And then like, so then you can't be, you can always source it if you need to, but like you, so you actually hide the identity in their speech. But like, anyway, <laughs> I mean, the information he gives in this chapter could literally be used to like arrest these people, right? Like, uh, like the, it's not that hard to, to figure out who was the gang leader at the time when Venkatesh was doing the stuff and who said what, right? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just, and he knows he's not supposed to do that. He had a criminal justice grant, I think, from the government. You're specifically not supposed to do that. But anyway. So the, the financials are, are somewhat interesting. Um, the, the gang is basically structured like a franchise with a board of directors and independent territories run by separate hierarchies. Um, they are very like, uh, they, they don't actually contest the territories as much as you'd think. Uh, they mm -hmm. do, but not not as much as you'd think. Well, because it's um, costly to do so. Yeah, exactly. Yep, exactly. Um, the the leaders, like the boards of directors, uh, they earned six figures while the rest earned minimum wage or less. Uh, if you were a typical member, your chances of being killed uh, over a four-year period were 25%. Uh, so uh, uh, if you were in a gang with three other guys for four years, one of you probably wouldn't make it. Um mm -hmm. And uh, so it's a bit like capitalism. <laughs> here's, a, here's a quote I pulled here. Uh, he says, so if crack dealing is the most dangerous job in America and this if the salary is only three thirty an hour, why on earth would anyone take such a job? Well, for the same reason that a pretty Wisconsin farm girl moves to Hollywood. What the fuck? <laughs> exactly the same reason. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but the point is that because you, people have over stated i guess in his view overstated uh views of their own capacities that are just trying to make it big by taking and no risk no reward right or whatever right, but, right, right. but uh, and much like the uh much like the crack dealers uh one in four wisconsin farm girls will be dead within four years also it's just funny because in economics right it's just like it's not like preferences are supposed to exert some uh inexorable pull on behavior you also have to look at what people are alternatives are their capabilities and their alternatives so if the yes. choice the choices between i mean i think he does have a throwaway line on this but it's the choices yeah he does a three three dollars and 11 cents an hour which by the way i mean that's more than it is now but uh and like either unemployment or um you know uh or uh or not being able to pay for someone's your mother's you know medicine or uh you know having to work in like some horrible like factory yard or slaughterhouse i mean just like what what there's no count it's like it's just so you know you can't discuss alternatives it's just so isolation. fucking white it's, right. it's the whitest shit well ever. but for discussing <laughs> white people he would almost certainly address the alternatives to action so when yeah, exactly well because white, he knows those right yeah that's you know? fair <laughs> but venkatesh knows those too i mean that's what the book is about so it's just right. like like when a, like white people do uh you know I mean we see this like we always hear this with the sh school shootings and stuff like it's just like like it's always explained away as like un, un you know either pathology or lack of options you know 
for the white working class or whatever. Like, but um, then like for anybody else, uh, poverty is their fault. Uh, totally preference directed. They are sovereign, complete agents capable of defining the world around them. You know what I mean? It's just like, yep. <laughs> um, oh man. Uh, I have another one of his, uh, his wacky comparisons. I didn't, I didn't actually put the next part cause it just pissed me off. It was uh, now for another unlikely question. What did crack cocaine have in common with nylon stockings? Oh, cool. Uh, but anyway, he so you can't have a, a chapter on crack cocaine uh, during the peak of the crack epidemic uh, without <laughs> touching on uh, the the Iran Contra scandal. Uh, so he says, uh, Blandon would later claim that he was selling coca- selling the cocaine to raise money. For the CIA-sponsored Contras back home in Nicaragua. He liked to say that the CIA was in turn watching his back in the United States, allowing him to sell cocaine with impunity. This claim would spark a belief that still sees to this day, especially among urban blacks, that the blacks, uh, that the CIA itself was the chief sponsor of the American crack trade. Which, of course, he doesn't believe that. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, the chief sponsor is, is uh, overstated, but the the... The, the accusation that they stood by and benefited from it. I mean, that's not conspiracy theory. That's like congressional. I mean, okay. What is with Gary Webb, dark triangle, whatever he killed himself and all that stuff. And his original mm-hmm. book did compl- contain conspiratorial stuff and over uh, inference and, um, and, uh, and, you know, s- bad sourcing or whatever. But then even like later, like they did reviews of him and journalistic reviews of how they treated him at Washington Post, New York Times, and these government congressional reviews. And and the, the overwhelming tone of these reviews were critical. They're like, oh, he was still wrong. But if you read the things, both of them, all of them, they have these throwaway lines where they're like, oh, but actually like some of the central substance of his claims could in fact have been uh, – were in fact true with regards to uh, <laughs> allowing this to happen. You know, I mean, it's just like, like, <laughs> like. Uh, so it's these reports being like, "See, he's wrong because here is a softer version of the claim that he made that's true." Mm-hmm. Like it was just like, uh, I don't know, whatever. There's a uh, God. I actually like the CIA wasn't the number one dealer of crack. They were the number three dealer no, of crack. So they, you know, he's just wrong. <laughs> they, 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 they were like the CIA was like. Uh, <laughs> He's he's like the uh, the the bouncer at the club who turns a, a blind eye to like the drug dealing so that they can get a cut from it. Yeah, right. and then and then and also that like if anybody causes trouble at the bar, they know the drug dealers will take care of it for them. So <laughs> he gets to. In fact, this is a very good analogy for how the CIA related to these drug dealers. But uh, <laughs> that, that is that is in effect. Those are the two things they did for them. They got the money and whatever, and then they used uh, them, uh, especially in Mexico and, and South America, as like uh, anti-communist mm-hmm. uh, uh, police, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But anyway, so Levitt talks about how the crack epidemic was worse for Black people than any single thing since Jim Crow. And suddenly the violent crime wave that resulted from it disappeared without a trace. And uh, this is where he launches into the next chapter, which I'm pretty sure is about how abortion stopped violent crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, wait, wait, wait. But wait, I think it was in this chapter that he uh, discusses uh, the uh, broken windows thesis, the, the, the crack cocaine one. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so that's I think key too because even before he pads the stuff about just ripping off the the original version of Freakonomics, which is Economics in One Lesson Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but no, no, but what's his, uh, the problem was uh, was James Q. Wilson and what's his face in, in the seventies or eighties in public in the Atlantic magazine, and they drew on some misuse of a social psychology paper to argue that um, it was like the deterioration of the so morality of an air. I mean, like basically like. If you let public indecency, oh yeah, because you like uh, you know, there's a bunch of bandos in crime-ridden areas, and so like that means that uh, having a bando causes crime, basically. Right. And yeah. by the way, there is evidence that uh, like deterioration of infrastructure and of cultural norms and uh, inaccessibility of public space, on um, and lack of eyes on the street, as it's called, all encourage crime. That's indisputably the case. However, mm. the mechanism is not through the f- freaking fucking construct of like. Uh, uh, moral indecency and like the solution yeah, the solution is to fix the right. infrastructure and, and not and, arrest people right. Yeah, and, right and they say and they say like and it's uh it's like uh if the problem is not enough eyes on the street then coercing like putting the fucking bunch of police everywhere so people don't go out is not going to solve the problem and then finally even in the fucking james q wilson paper the broken windows whatever whatever they say again as a throwaway line Yes, studies show that these policies don't really reduce crime. However, residents polled felt they reduced crime. <laughs> yes, feelings. And, Love that. So, and so, I, I just sent you a link to a review of the Broken Windows literature and shows that it's you know horseshit. But uh, just so that, and this is by the way what led to um, in the early '90s in New York, stop and frisk, um, all of these new. <clears throat> it's a very big milestone in the militarization of the police. Uh, and in mass incarceration um, and the super criminals thing. Um, it started when you got to have this thing where it's like speeding on the subway became a fine. And the thing is, is that after um, like three unpaid um, misdemeanor civil infractions in the city, right, um, you gain a criminal infraction of a, of a felony, right? So but actually, because and if you, so if you can't pay for it or you're just afraid of going in and paying for it or whatever, after you, if you, if you man spread, spit on the uh, ground and jump the turnstile three times, you have a felony and don't pay it. You have a felony thing. And so there's literally, I think, I don't know, this number seemed, I have to look at it again, but it may have been as high as like 1 million people in New York city are like uh, criminalized living as like legal criminals. And they don't even realize it. Like, uh, wow. They could be. I need. I need to look at the exact numbers and stuff, but it's actually absurd. It's like clearly a racket. First of all, uh, it's also clearly just racist. Yeah, that'd be like one in eighteen people or something like that. Yeah. Uh, well, if it's for the city proper, it's one in eight. But uh, that's why I need to check on it. But uh, uh, the other thing is that what is it like? Um, oh, so if you look at the arrests for things like these civil infractions, like jumping turnstiles or putting your feet up on the suits in the subway or whatever, they always occur at the end of the month like the last three days of the month yep. and they always occur um like around night around like midnight when no one's on the train and they always occur in poor and black neighborhoods mm-hmm. and so it's like i remember there was this buzzfeed thing about like bad spreading laws in new york or whatever and everyone's like oh wow this is great and then like you looked at it and it was immediately used to just harass uh, uh m- m- marginalized people like yeah. uh, whatever and this all stems from this fucking broken windows shit that he's boosting in this book and it's mm-hmm. horseshit it's just it's just <laughs> Anyway, uh, so the next chapter is called "What Makes a Perfect Parent," and uh, he starts. Uh, he talks about statistical death risks to children. Uh, then he he cites a, a book that oh, wait, was wait, sensational wait, wait, wait. at the time. Go ahead. Wait, wait, wait. We, we didn't talk about where all the criminals have gone, though. 
<laughs> oh. oh, okay. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't have that in my notes. Oh, but because before that, because that's where he talks about um, well, several things. He talks about guns. He talks about genetics. He talks about um, punishment, and he talks about um, uh, abortion. So he basically says, you know, there's this crime boom right that occurred in the '60s uh, up until the '90s, and his expl- and then it and then it dropped off immediately without explanation. And his explanation is abortion because uh, uh, poor and uh, people and people by his men- by his imagining due to genetics predisposed to criminality were aborted at higher rates. Now, the problem with this is that first of all, the crime boom happened in the same form, though not the same scale and level. This is key: the same like rate, but not the same scale and level. I know, that, but uh, in every single post-war industrial economy. It happened in Japan, it happened in Canada, it happened in France, it happened in America, it happened in Australia, it happened in Spain, it happened in every single one of these places. Not the same magnitude, but the same shape. Secondly, it fell in all these places at the same time, too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, third, these countries all had incredibly different abortion laws, incredibly different drug laws, incredibly different incarceration rates. Incredibly yeah, did you say it occurred in Ireland? Yeah, it occurred everywhere. <laughs> um, and so, because like, I remember reading your thread about this a while ago. <laughs> well, like Canada, for example, had uh, the rate of crime fall during the same period. I'm sorry, the rate of incarceration fall during the same period, even though their crime rate fell during the same period at the same rate as the United States. So that's the first problem. Secondly, the demographic boom part of it, which he mentions, is probably true that that was the main because that's one of the main things in common between these places. Uh, between these places, but the other things in common between these places is what rise in social alienation. Um, uh, in, industrial pollution may have had some effect, but I'm skeptical of that one. Um, changes in policing structure, uh, urbanization, social dislocation, um, uh, and uh, rising inequality, and a lot of other things that they did hold. Oh, change in the yeah, highway system, infrastructure system, all this stuff. Isn't social inequality the most reliable predictor of violent crime in a society? Uh, that's a longer conversation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the short, the short answer from uh, public re- rhetoric is yes. The academic answer is no, because <laughs> 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 it's more about deprivation and, and like status inequality and a few other things and social ties. Right, right. I mean, crime is caused by like thirty-five thousand different factors, right? It's like yeah, deprivation and status and crime and institutions and upbringing and I don't know. Uh, I think it's caused by personal responsibility. Exactly right. So that's the other thing he says <laughs> is that uh, so there's the explanations, right? Okay, first of all, abortion did not occur in all these same places at the same time. Uh, abortion did not occur among the groups of people that he thinks are responsible for this. Um, <laughs> third and um, third, crime, uh, yeah, crime rates fell and rose in places irrespective of their abortion rates. And then the other thing, though, is that he says mass incarceration solved it because mass incarceration ballooned during this time. And he says that, you know, whatever. But again, incarceration fell in some places and rose in others, but they had the same rates. Same thing with the proactive policing. And Bruce Western did a study in his bo- a great book, uh, Punishment and Equality in the United States. Um, he reanalyzed the data and he looked at whatever. And he showed that for every uh, 66% rise in the imprisonment rate, there was a 3% fall in crime. That's it compared to his near to one to one explanation. And by the way, that's just the direct fall, right? When you look at the counterbalancing effects of social dislocation and inequality, which are mm-hmm. and lack, lack lack of faith in uh what the law that occur with mass incarceration, that net effect is actually either zero or increases crime. So right. um 
So there's Bruce Western and there's a, a, a few other people, uh, Tom Tyler, uh, Todd Clear, they all discuss this stuff. And I think, but, and I think this is important because this shows just like how deep his bullshit runs because the central <laughs> claim of his book, like based on this notion of incentives and prisons, therefore, are the best example because it's straightforward. You commit, and I mean, it's not that straightforward, but you know what I mean. It is, I mean, it I mean he said it was like the best incentive or the most powerful right. incentive. The most straightforward, <laughs> except somehow uh, it didn't work in communism or whatever. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, he says that. And so like, but the fact of the matter is it's not true. Fear of the law does not, fear of punishment does not predict compliance with the law unless there is near, a near 100% relationship between like uh, being caught the, but the severity of punishment doesn't um, predict it. It's the frequency. Mm-hmm. So a, well, a slap on the wrist, which occurs 100% of the time, is a more effective deterrent than the death penalty occurring 50% of the time. Um, that's why restorative justice works. But mm-hmm. the uh, other point is that, uh, uh, like, um, uh, the biggest predictor, of, for example, one of the biggest predictors of whether or not people follow the law is whether or not they believe the, ju- the law is just and fair and, and um, uh, valid. Another one is whether or not they have strong ties to their community. Another is their action, actions, their, um, their options and alternatives. The other is social peer pressure. The other is availability of education, wages, employment, useful activity, and so on. The other is um, like – I mean like all these things like eyes on the street as we were talking about um, – you know, at the end of the day, the, the the incentives in the form of monetary and monetary incentives matter for like burglary and stuff. But um, mm-hmm. like, for example, the introduction of certain kinds of things in cars like GPS and like non-stealable radios and certain kinds of car alarms, those did basically, you know, end a lot of auto theft in many places. Um, <clears throat> but uh, that's not that's very few things you can do that for. Same thing. Home security systems may have an effect on our, um, house robberies, but that's burglaries. That's like another, but that's about it. Like everywhere else, like the financial and direct incentives don't matter as much as the conditions, the constraints, the capacities, the resources, and their distribution and their relation. And and that point undercuts not only just like this book, but. 99% of the public discourse on economics and free markets and individuals, and including on the left when they're being moralistic and sentimental. But, um, <laughs> and I think it's just, that's just so key. There's this great book by Bernard Harcourt. I was his name, first name, Bernard. The book is called um, The Illusion of Free Markets. His last name is Harcourt. I forget his first name. He's a law professor at U Chicago, which is funny given his relationship with this guy. But this book talks about how the spread of Mass incarceration and crim- not mass incarceration, but incarceration in general, the prison system, the sort of Benthamite idea of the panopticon, the the idea of the prison as the moral reformer, the carceral yep. system, the police, poli- surveillance, all this other stuff, uh, and and the discourse of individual responsibility, uh, free will, morality, whatever, accompanied the spread of capitalism in literally every single fucking place it occurred, and so. His whole point is that, like, if that's first of all, if that's the case, then that means that you're by. De- I mean, I mean, we already knew this technically, like analytically and say formally. But he's saying, look, even historically and intellectually and ideologically and structurally, like, this shows that there is no such thing as a market, like a capitalist system that does not depend on a carceral system and on policing in the state and prisons. And yep. you know, economists are more wont to admit that these days. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's often denied or seen as not a violation of freedom. 
And the other point is that um, like uh, it shows that capitalism is not just an economic system in as much as it's also a moral system and a disciplinary yep. system. Yep. It's a system for controlling like, and this is the Foucauldian point or whatever, but it's just like, it's a system for, for shaping people as subjects as such. And like the prison system, surveillance, policing, carcerality, the military, bureaucracy, NASSEC, all these institutions are fundamental to this system. And uh, they're fundamental to shaping the way we live and relate to each other. And this, I mean, ideas don't move history, but it's certainly the case that ideological drivel like fucking uh, Levitt and Dubner is used as a retroactive post-hoc justification for this nonsense. And that the left internalizes this individualism and moralism. All right, that's my that's this is one of my biggest spiels my whole <laughs> life. So I just have to get it out there because this has been a spiel of mine since I was like you know six eighteen. It's like something that very bo <laughs> strongly bothers me. But anyway, that's it. Uh, anyway, yeah, it's a really, my, my it's summary would be deal. capitalism is statecraft. Uh, but I mean, this is even I'm saying this is kind of even more sinister than that. Like, there's like uh, a deeper kind of almost. I don't want to say psychology or whatever here, but there is this like, like strong connection between because again there are cynicists, cynical people and and uh, you know opportunists, but a shit ton of these people actually believe the lies they're selling. Yep. A shit ton yeah. of these people legitimately believe that morality and individual free will and authenticity are sufficient justification for uh, sticking a needle in some fuck someone's fucking arm and killing them or. Uh, you know, fucking throwing people in cages or letting people die in the street. And so that the justification across these three things is shared so intensely and so emotionally mm -hmm. and so sentimentally. And the fact that it's like almost aestheticized and the fact that it's also held in the form of this like Protestant moralism and stuff on the left as well, that is incredibly distressing because that means that like killing the cop in our head is a lot more difficult than people are realizing. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and a lot more important than people realize, like, mm -hmm. like central, like, like we all like yes. need to realize that we have been trained. I mean, partially yeah. Yeah, there's evidence for the innateness of the retributive response, but not to the fucking degree that we have and not for its institutionalization. Yeah. And so like, like the fact of the matter is this is why I say retributivism is one of the biggest fucking scourges in the world ideologically. And that's what his whole thing is selling. It's like a, it's like a gust up formalist justification for throwing people in cages. Basically. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. It's as I, as I personally have, have, cause I, you know, I came to a, a lot of the same realizations as yourself is that it's like this kind of, uh, subliminal shit, uh, as much as it is anything else, you know, it's, um, but, uh, as I've expressed to people who I think were struggling with, um, the fact that, yeah, like we on the left have internalized all this shit and like the, like it's, you know, a lot of people sincerely believe all this, you know, uh, often what I say is like, you know, I, I believe that we can, uh, approach some kind of, you know, utopian world given, uh, perhaps, uh, certain number of material victories in the future, but it will still take us a thousand years to get there culturally because we've all been so deeply poisoned. Um, and so I try to just kind of pace myself <laughs> um, and just approach things like this is where we're at. This is how fucked up we actually are, it seems. And uh, to, you know, that, that deconstruction and that that removal of the poisons, you know, over time uh, will you know, it's the work of a lifetime and it's the work of, of many communities. 
I think what um, we need to do is we yeah. need to get together all of the world's biggest sweeties, and they're going to be the <laughs> only ones that are allowed to raise kids, and the rest of us are going <laughs> to volunteer to go fuck off. We can gamble and drink and, and kill ourselves like the normal way that we do, and then this other generation won't have any of our culture at all. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think the sweeties are also the ones who are like most likely to vote for like uh... – like uh, UKIP yeah. and like uh, and yeah. the and yeah. the BJP. Oh and, no, I'm, uh, I'm talking about like the, like the street fight boys. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the the seriously wrong boys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. no, I don't want kids raised by those sissy you man. Okay, so now we can move on to the what makes a perfect parent thing. Uh, so this is all uh. about. Uh, this sensational Ugh. book. Uh, I didn't really write much of a summary. I didn't write the title or anything like that. But it, it, the book basically claims that uh, parenting doesn't matter, and that yeah. parents' only real contribution to child development is genetics. Uh, but I, I'm pretty sure that they are mistaking genetics for heritability, uh, for one thing. Um, but so he says this about it. He says. Um, Harris argued, albeit gently, that parents are wrong to think that they contribute so mightily to their child's personality. This belief, she wrote, was a cultural myth. Harris argued that the top-down influence of parents is overwhelmed by the grassroots effect of peer pressure, the blunt force applied each day by friends and schoolmates. But Harris's theory was duly endorsed by a slate of heavyweights. Among them was Steven Pinker, <laughs> noted <laughs> child welfare expert Steven Pinker. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I I mean it's just, I mean it's just like so uh, like just dis dishonest. See more dishonest usage of evidence here, right? Because like uh, like you know he'll point to something where like the inelasticity of a behavior to something is not affected by a policy. So for example, like you know certain prison thing, certain po crime policies didn't work or whatever or or whatever. But then he's just like like it's probably true that conscious application by parents and attempts to control and shape the child's personality and their uh whatever will probably not work but mm -hmm. that's a, but that doesn't uh they still it, the idea that parents still affect like your norms and what you say and what peer groups yeah. you end up with and what yeah. you, your habits and your schools and they can either fuck you up and abuse you or they can support you or some mixture of both and right. and, it, and there's pr all these things do have very provable causal effects in real time. It's not like it's a question. I mean, we can hold. Yeah, I'm sure. Constant. I'm sure children have the same politics and religion as their parents because of genetics. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. And like, and and all this stuff. And then just like, uh, first of all, he says what he says. What does he say that? Uh, life outcomes are what ninety nine percent inherited. He gives some absurd number, right? Yeah. Uh, um. First of all, even if you are lumping together like epigenetics, genetics, uh, um, uh, uh, like maternal effects and uh, like uh, womb effects and like uh, neonatal nutrition and early upbringing and um, all this other stuff, the idea that any trait is 99% heritable besides like what, like height, is it, just like uh, is is absolute horseshit. I mean, it's just like like. The hereditarian traits are one percent inspiration and ninety nine percent haplogroups, <laughs> right? And it's just, but it's just there's almost no trait that's like that. Like I mean, not yeah. almost no. I mean, there are some traits like you know height is 
like the the almost 100% of the variance is explained in the population is explained by genetics although that itself is misleading because the population average itself varies because of the environment so uh yeah. but anyway people don't usually understand that distinction Let, let's they, say huntington's disease is 100% genetics yes <laughs> right i mean yeah sure there we go that's a one that's one example but that's not really, that's not even really a trait you know it's like but yeah. uh um and and the number of monogenic traits uh are, is almost it's very small but um uh like uh 99 no one no one credible would ever see that the highest i've seen even from not from, aside from like you know uh twitter shithead like hereditarians or whatever aside from them like don't and even in academia even among the most like shitty sociopathic evil psych and behavioral genetics types of people they usually their estimates are usually they're usually smart enough to cap their estimates at like sixty percent. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, like that's like the high. You know, I've seen I've seen like eighty percent, seventy five percent, eighty percent. You know, like uh, in some cases, but like mostly like because precisely because the research clings to like the fifty percent number, which are probably is an artifact of preconceived notions affecting study design. That's another question. Uh, but uh, like, like you, you have to be very stupid to believe that something like like. Uh, life outcomes are 99% heritable, let alone through the sole mechanism of genetics. I mean, that's literally like La La Land <laughs> level nonsense. That's like, <laughs> that's, that's, well, that's speaking of being stupid, uh, he, he talks about this uh, Chicago public school system program that uh, it, oh, it was a school was choice program. Oh, uh, maybe I don't, I didn't write the name down, but uh, it was a school choice program that used a lottery based uh, acceptance system. So instead of taking on everyone, uh, because they didn't want to, you know, uh, fully fund the system and let everyone go where they wanted to, uh, they had a lottery to, uh, randomly select people, uh, which, you know, that's okay, cool. Uh, I support lotteries, uh, in that sense. Uh, but, but so he, he brings that up because he says it resembles a large scale experiment and, Again, he's saying this uh, to talk about genetics, uh, which he uh, more clearly here confuses with heritability. Um, so there's uh, these test scores uh, in the Chicago public school systems, and uh, there are certain traits that the uh, that are measured on the children. And so he lists eight traits, and he wants you to guess which ones do correlate with test scores and which ones don't. So the traits are. Uh, the child has highly educated parents. The child's parents have high socioeconomic status. Uh, the child's mother was 30 year older at the time of her first child's birth. The child had low birth weight. The child's parents speak English in the home. The child was adopted. The child's parents are involved in the PTA and the child has many books in his home. Um, so first of all, uh, about half of these are just like, you have rich parents. <laughs> like, yeah. Highly educated parents, or, high or, SES. Or you grow up in a neighborhood where people are rich, even if you're yeah, right. right. Like uh, 95% of the rebuttals against deprivation studies and in, in class studies can be addressed if that point is taken into account. Also, mm -hmm. if uh, you look at um, regression, like uh, like the life course rather so so if you're 20 years old your um your income is not very highly correlated with your parents but if you're 60 years old it's almost the same almost almost you know what i mean so yeah mm -hmm. uh anyway yeah <laughs> um 
Damn, I didn't write down which were the actual answers. I think it was. Yeah, I'm trying uh, to find it right hi- now. But highly educated parents, high SES. Um, let's see, adopted. I think was one of them. No, adopted was not one of them. Um, low birth weight. I think was one of them. And many. Uh, no, uh, involved in the PTA. <laughs> I don't remember, but but basically, like most of them were. You have high socioeconomic status. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, big, big fucking shock. Um, yeah. yeah. And he, so he talks about IQ and the heritability of IQ. Uh, he says that a uh, child's academic abilities are more, far more influenced by the IQs of his biological parents than the IQs of his adoptive parents. And mothers who give up their children for adoption tend to have significantly lower IQs than the people who are doing the adopting. Uh, there is another explanation for low achieving adoptees, which though it may seem distasteful, oh boy, uh, jibes with the basic economic theory of self-interest. A woman who knows she will put her baby up for adoption may not take the same prenatal care as a woman who is keeping her baby. What the fuck? <laughs> uh, consider at the risk of furthering the, the distasteful thinking, how you treat your car you own, uh, how you treat a car you uh. own versus a car you are renting for the weekend. Fucking Christ! This is that's, nothing. I mean, oh my that's God! That's sociopathic thing to say. Uh, yeah. where, where I'm trying to find that line, but yeah, uh, it's just, I'm guessing he has a, like a meticulously clean home, but like wrecks up any place where someone else has to clean it up. <laughs> yeah, right. You know? right, right. Says, this is funny. He says, um, "You know, it's funny because I'm the opposite. I, I will. I live in squalor, but I'll always clean up the yeah. myself in other places. Same. I'm but, similar. Uh, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> it's funny. So he talks about this thing. Uh, eight variables that aren't predictive. I mean, in this study, he says, but, you know, it's like the child's family is intact. Parents moved to a better neighborhood. Uh, Head start, regularly spanked. Uh, parents read to him, frequently watch his television. But the fact of the matter is, is we all independently do know that those are predictive, like, and actually highly so. And in, like, uh, instrumentalized control individual studies and on the population-wide level, they both are reveal that. I mean, um, the post-tax average income of the neighborhood you live in matters even more than your own households in many ways because like how safe your school is and how good your school is and how many friends you have is determined by that as well as like what resources you're exposed to as opposed to like you know what i mean so uh child's family is intact yeah, property taxes determine your school funding education and so if you have exactly. a bunch of rich neighbors then you have a better school and then and it's like and there's you know these salutary effects like if they all get like tutors and stuff or whatever like like there's gonna be some sort of you know what I mean like so like yeah. uh, and and probably going to have better roads and what you know what I mean so it's just like uh, we know spanking leads to behavioral and intention issues we've known that we have like fifty years of re- like fifty year studies that show that we know um, we know that with Head Start Head Start probably doesn't and early pre K probably doesn't uh, enhance their doing well in school but not going to it worsens it like we know that that that's like another that's a distinction that people really ma- rarely make and it allows him to get away with this so it's um, more like other kids get ahead of you then you fall behind right it's like it's sort of like there's a mean toward which we cling and it's easier to fuck people up from the mean than it is to make them get ahead of it um so it's just like which is why by the way um even if in the genetic studies i mean these are all doubtable for their own reasons for a hundred reasons including whatever but even in like the studies of like iq that they use to justify this stuff they find that the the variance uh, explained by genetics is higher among 
wealthy people and lower among non-wealthy people. And the, the re reason is, is that wealthy people have homogenous environments. So of mm -hmm. course the effect is going to look smaller from the environment. Whereas people from poorer neighborhoods have heterogeneous, more heterogeneous environments. You know, it's the Tolstoy, uh, all happy families yep. are happy in the same way, uh, happy in the same way, all unhappy or unhappy in their own way. And I mean, again, that, that doesn't, the IQ stuff, class stuff, that's just bullshit. I mean, it's just like, uh, there's so many things wrong with it, but just as an illustration, like the way that they do not disentangle, you know, intra and intergroup variants, like, uh, mean level stuff, interactive effects, heritability, and like the asymmetry of causality. I mean, it's just like, unless you do that, unless you disaggregate those effects, you have no capacity to talk about the subject at all. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. You know what I mean? Especially if your goal is giving people advice, right? You know what I mean? Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. I'm trying to. But and by the way, what's his metric here for um for uh uh success? It's test scores. Test scores. <laughs> it's test scores. Yeah. Um, right. And that in itself is revealing, right? Because just like uh. Well, for whatever. Yeah, he, a lot of he had a he had a fucking chapter where he said that test scores are rigged by teachers. <laughs> that's, true. that's true. That's a different kind of test, though. That's a different kind of test, right? That's um, that's that's them ringing the performance assessment of the class. This is like, uh, like like you don't get any benefit from performing. I don't. I mean, I don't, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Whatever. Right. No, actually, it is the thing. No, it is well because I have to look at the study because depending on whether or not they used. The school testing, the IQ testing, or the AFQT matters a lot, actually. But uh, um, uh, I don't know. I have to look at it. <coughs> There's a really wonderful book um, called um, Intersectional Inequality by these guys, uh, uh, Reagan and Fiss. Uh -huh. And there was a book a while that came out a long time called Inequality by Design that was a rebuttal to the bell curve, and it showed – you know, using hundreds of, you know, not hundreds, but a ton of fucking variables to show why the, the results were bullshit. Mm -hmm. The beauty of this book, the, the Reagan and Fist, is that it's, first of all, one, it's only like 100 pages. And it only uses like six variables to show that it's bullshit. Because it just like, it shows, it, it, it weights the variables against like their conditional priors. And it um, uses like a set theoretical method to like, such that uh, instead of like having to like sort out in interaction effects after the effect fact it's clumped in such a way that, that it's always in there and it's always against its whatever it's a whole whatever it's but it's very um unique uh, very innovative method and they're basically able to show with just like five variables that any of these iq and test score claims are nonsense like it's just like like they're the, it's like you know you just clump education edu parental education income race gender test scores or whatever and like all of the explanatory effect, apparent explanatory effect of like you know, um, innateness and uh, and uh, ra and like race and like uh, whatever, go away and very quickly the the um, cultural and social and economic effects emerge. Right? It's just like uh, and but of course this guy would never cite that. I mean, it came out after him, but it's just like he, these people just like. But it's not like that literature didn't exist. I mean, the book uh, Inequality by Design, I'm pretty sure existed when this book came out. So, you know, it's very it's irresponsible to have cite, not have cited that. Anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, so he, he closes out uh, the book with uh, part two of the perfect parent chapter, which I, I've changed the chapter? subtitle. 
Uh, yes, uh, and yeah. I've changed the subtitle to Distracting You from White Supremacy. Uh, so right. he starts with a story about a cop named Loser Lane, which he yeah, thinks is yeah, funny yeah. for exactly the wrong reasons. <laughs> he <laughs> says, uh, Loser Lane did in fact secede. He went to prep school on a scholarship, graduated from Lafayette College in Pennsylvania, and joined the New York Police Department. This was his mother's longtime wish, where he made detective and eventually sergeant. Um... So after a couple of cute anecdotes about names, uh, it starts to get truly insane. Uh, he says, Fryer's mission is the study of black underachievement. One could rattle off all the statistics about blacks not doing what God, I cringe every time I say blacks. Uh, blacks not doing so well, he says. You can look at the black-white differential in out-of-wedlock births or infant mortality or life expectancy. Blacks are the worst-performing ethnic group on SATs. Blacks earn less than whites. They are still just not doing well, period. I basically want to figure out where blacks went wrong, and I want to devote uh, my life oh to Oh, my this. God. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, where, uh, where hmm, blacks went hmm. wrong? Hmm. Oh, my God. Oh I guess uh, if I had to guess, I would say they probably shouldn't have been enslaved by whites. Um, and so, obviously, that's a personal responsibility thing. You know, right, if you want to yeah. do well... If you want your your great great grandchildren to do well, then uh, you shouldn't let yourself become here's, a slave. Here's yeah. here's I will tell you right now where blacks went wrong. They okay. forgot to sell the futures contract on all of their fucking labor. See, they didn't get into the contract. That, 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 that joke's too. That's too. That's too too soon. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the, don't don't get me canceled by proxy. Come on. <laughs> I'm just. Uh, I'm just Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> but, but, this uh, is uh, as as we hinted earlier the the, the, the chapter just about how uh, how uh, there are like ethnically colored names and uh, black people okay. have certain names that they give their kids and if they have if if a black child or a black adult has one of those names they are less likely to be hired and and stuff like that. Um, and w one thing that I thought was interesting was that he points out that. Uh, prior to, I think it was the seventies, um, black people had mostly the same names as white people. And then mm. possibly due to the like, uh, NOI, like pan-African influence, mm. uh, there started to be more distinctly, uh, black American names. What, what evidence does he cite for that? I don't remember. Probably nothing. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, I mean, uh, like. Uh, uh, what? I mean, what? There's always been uh, in interracial and interethnic. Oh, oh, as in, in like uh, United what? States. What evidence for uh for the rates the the names, rates of being, names being different? Uh, yeah, I, I think I think he cited evidence for that. I thought you were talking about the why it okay. changed, but yeah, no, yeah, I, he, I think yeah, I think he did cite something about how common certain names were, like uh, according to like hospitals or something. But the but uh, modal commonality is not the same thing as uh like uh mean and median differences in names right you know what i mean like <laughs> if the if 10 percent of people uh okay let's say like there are three names which are 10 percent 10 percent each have 10 percent of all groups are named like whatever that matthew yeah. uh sarah and chris or something but then like every single other name in the 70 percent vary on lines oh, or whatever you know what i, right. I think he was citing top 10 uh, top that's 10 what I'm, that's, most common. That's names. what I'm saying. That's my point, though. That's the modal. That's okay. modal. That's modal, right? So that's that. Those could be those top ten could comprise 
50% of names, but then if every single name and the other 50% varied on, on, on different lines, I see. Okay. they want to undercut yeah. the point, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Because so yep. modality is not a, can't be a judge, uh, it can't be used to judge this stuff. Mm-hmm. True. Anyway, that's um, But yeah, so yeah, there's, there's not much else to this. It, it, it kind of closes suddenly. Um, it does close like, very suddenly. Like, like he literally uh, he lists popular names and a short little bit about how uh, rich kid names, like like names that are ri- are the top ten for rich kids, uh, later become the top ten for poorer people, um, and then it just fucking ends. <laughs> you know, uh, and, it, and it's and it's interesting that he doesn't. Uh, I mean, maybe he doesn't know or he doesn't cite like one of the first people who actually discussed f- a similar phenomenon, which was Pierre Bourdieu, which um, shows that showed how like the cultural tastes of um, and like the fashions or whatever of the elites, you know, are adopted by working class people, you know, as a way to signal social capital, then once then that you know from the perspective of rich people dilutes its uh, validity as a social signal, so then they change. But then, what you know you also see though in the event of high culture um, and like hipsters as we used to call them, which is that is also the reverse. You see elites uh, establishing cultural capital for themselves, social and linguistic and cultural capital for themselves by cannibalizing from working class and marginalized people. So it's actually very interesting is that uh, there's b- both of these phenomenon, right? So it's just like um, like uh, this like costly social signaling and social capital and linguistic capital and cultural capital, but like uh, these different processes uh, of like class and uh, race and income in real time. So it's like um, like I, I don't really, I guess like one would maybe I don't know if this is true, but I think it sort of tracks it would be like the wealthy. Uh, cannibalized from contemporary working class uh, and uh, poor and black uh, youth culture while like parents of adults try to like uh, uh, I don't know what the word like the word copy is annoying but it's just like to use the labels of the cultural elite or whatever I don't know Mm -hmm. yeah but but the point is though is that 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 research that established these things that he's talking about whatever it's all about class and it's all about how class is reproduced on more levels than just economic and social linguistic and cultural status capital and uh, effects and, and their institutional stuff really matter for this question because they are sort of like um, you know they don't they don't matter in the first instance right like they're not why people are poor in the first place and they're not why whatever, but they are, they are a mechanism by which the system reproduces itself pretty strongly. So it's just, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting that he just totally elides that. Uh, so, um, should we close it out? Oh, I sort of assumed that we already had, because that's why. Okay. uh, Cause we, uh, cause we like, you know, stop talking about the book. And so everything after now is just sort of like filler, right? Right. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. I guess I should have said that. I sort of assumed that everything we said after we started talking about the book was like a selective inclusion at that point. Sure. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think we will probably just edit in the interesting philosophical bits we just did. And then we'll probably edit out all the like, you know, the bits and pieces. That well, just 
Well, you can you can include the uh the thing about telling Zoomers to kill us. That's fine, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> great way to, to to end out, you know. That'll that'll be on the Patreon feed, I think. Yeah, I just want to close it out because uh, if I do it tomorrow, it'll sound different. Um, so uh, we will reconvene another time uh, to record uh, an episode about Super Freakonomics uh, because we went a little longer than we thought. Um, so if you enjoyed this, uh, be sure to come back for the Super Freakonomics episode. Uh, check out our other episodes at neighborsciencepodcast.com or any uh, podcast app. Wow, I had to think of the word podcast. Crazy. <laughs> um, uh, please give us a rating on iTunes so that we can like get into charts or whatever. Uh, and shit. Uh, we're on Twitter at NeighborsciPod. And uh, Young Neocon has also given me a ton of links to also go in the show description. So if you want to know uh, what else to read, uh, then you can just look there and uh, I mean, thanks for listening. Just like, uh, these are all, a lot of these are just straight up disproofs of Levitt and uh, Dubner. Uh, many of, many of them by name, many of these are explicit academic critiques of him. Like nice. the first one, two, three, four, I think the first five page papers I sent mention him by name. The rest are related, but not direct. Not, they don't say his name, but they they touch on subjects he discusses. That's a, yeah. I mean, so, the, I mean the ones that are my tweets. Those are just for you, you know. The, you know, right. the, uh, to be fair, you have to have a. You know, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, yeah. All right. <laughs> See All right. y'all later. Bye, All listeners. Right, <laughs> wait, wait, which anime are you discussing this time?